John chapter 14 is our text this morning, or this evening, as we ready to look, kind of dropping into this Passion Week is my goal in this, uh, this evening. I hope you're taking some time and reading through this particularly part of Christ's life. You know that this last week takes up around a third of the Gospels. There's more recorded of his teaching during this week than his entire life recorded on the rest of the gospel. So it is, there's so much there. And I'm going to drop into one of those texts and try to understand the setting um, as we see a great truth, one that we hold dear, this passage. But to understand it in its context, what was happening, what was about to happen. And think, and think through that as it pertains to the disciples, um, but then also as it pertains to us. That's my goal tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that we bring nothing in our hands to you. No wisdom, no gifts, none of that, Lord. Because if that was the case, we, first of all, would never be able to bring enough. We'd never know if we did enough. It would be a terrible, terrible life of, of no assurance. But our assurance is in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives us that boldness to come into your presence, a humble boldness that Hebrews writes about. So we thank you that it was not based on our works. And we thank you, even this text is going to remind us in this final hour your hour has come, Lord Jesus, and in this final hour, you are plowing the path to the Father. So help us marvel once again tonight at your Son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for gifting him to every one of us. We pray that our faith will be strengthened and encouraged tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 14, 1 through 6, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, every human being is born with a troubled heart. That's the idea here, right? It's talking about their troubled hearts. The disciples are troubled greatly here. And as I thought about this this week, I thought every one of us have troubled hearts, particularly before salvation. They're in big trouble, aren't they? In fact, the world doesn't know how troubled their hearts are. Because the Bible says that their hearts are desperately wicked. All of ours, desperately wicked, deceitfully wicked. And who can know them? So man doesn't even know the depths of the trouble that was in his heart, do they? I don't think we know it until after we're saved. I think we fully start to understand, and, and one day in heaven even more, but we understand depravity, don't we? We don't, we don't get it when we're stuck in it. These men are followers of Christ, and Jesus 
knows. They have troubled hearts. Well, I want to give you three thoughts this evening as we look at these six verses in chapter 14 here. Remember, chapter eight breaks are, are, were put in later, um, and sometimes they, they're, they're not good. And I think this is one that really kind of flows, and I'll help you understand the context here in a minute. But here we find Jesus in the upper room. If you look back at chapter 12, I want to just show you a couple of things. Starting in verse 27, he has one of his last sermons, if you will, with the public. This is the last time he's going to speak to the public. All the rest, all that you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the chapters and chapters that are recorded during this final week and these final days, particularly the upper room discourse happens, the public doesn't hear this. If you look at verse 32, one of the great statements he says to the public before he goes into inclusion with his disciples, he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He's referring back to Numbers 21, we'll be there shortly. Look and live, right? Look to the serpent that's on the the post that was lifted up, amazing. We'll, we'll have a blast when we get there trying to understand why God used a serpent and all that type of stuff. But here he reminds them, if, if I go through what, what I'm going to about to do, I'm going to draw people from every walk of life. I'm going to draw them from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, and they will come. That's what he's saying. His last, uh, last statements publicly. If you... Go on, you can read that a little later if you want. There's such great, this is such a great sermon, this last public one. But if you drop down to verse 45, he ties this all together with his equality with the Father. He says there, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. John records his equality with the Father more than anyone else. In fact, it's these kind of statements that, that have fueled their desire to kill him. And again, that becomes the charge to kill Jesus because he made himself out equal with God. And it's interesting, at least they got the message right. They didn't like it. And so now that's his final sermon. You can see that he is done speaking with the public and he moves into uh, inclusion with his disciples. They, they now, uh, there's no more public ministry. His hour is coming and you see that in chapter 13, he says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart from this world to be with the Father. Isn't that interesting? He's going to die, but he knows his hour's there, but he knows he's going to live because he's going back to be with the Father. Isn't that interesting? He's talked about his death, burial, and resurrection. There's no doubt in his mind what's going to take place as he knew the Father's plan because him and the Father share that essence together. It's fascinating, isn't it? So you come into this upper room discourse. Now you have the Lord's Supper coming about them. But verse 2, the devil is already put into the heart of Judas to betray our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of that is happening. Jesus washes their feet. Can you just imagine that? We know that beautiful scene. Peter goes, oh, you ain't washing my feet, Lord. He goes, well, if I don't wash your feet, you're not part of me. He goes, then wash all of me. <laughs> And he makes that great statement. He goes, no, no, I just need to wash the dust off your feet. Real teaching of us that we regularly come to the Lord for forgiveness of 
daily sins that Christ took care of on the cross. But then he goes into the Passover and showing that that's going to be replaced with the new covenant. The Passover was something that looked forward to Christ, that was fulfilled in Christ. And so we as Christians look at the Passover and see it portraying the beauty of the final lamb. That's why we don't here celebrate a Passover in a sense. We do study it, look at it, appreciate it, understand the biblical theology of where it's pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the final lamb. But now we look at the table, right? And we celebrate this last Sunday. We remember his death, burial, and resurrection. He has now, in its essence, replaced the Passover with the new covenant teaching of his death, burial, and resurrection. Judas, Judas betrays him in this passage. It's a sad one. Satan enters him in verse 27. He says, what you do, do quickly. That, that, that's just sobering, isn't it? You're going to go sell me out for the price of a slave. You've walked with me for three years. You've seen everything I've done. I've fed you. I've taken care of you. I've protected you. You've watched all of my miracles. You know that I forgive sins. I have the power on earth to forgive sins. You were there the day I healed the paralytic. Go do what you must do. Judas is a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament. There's a new command given. Verse 34, I give you that I give you this new command that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, not anybody else's, my disciples, because you love one another. That's the key. Isn't that beautiful? All this is coming down hours before his arrest. Doubtlessly, in town somewhere, the the. the Temple police and maybe a few Roman soldiers and, and Judas are, uh, and he's on his way and they're, they're getting ready to assemble and they're going to come arrest Jesus. All that's happening and he's still teaching, he's still instructing. He knows what is coming his way. He knows the suffering, the agony, and worse than that, he knows he's going to bear the sins of his children upon him. And yet he's still teaching them to love one another. And then he says this, Simon Peter says to him, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will later. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So there's a lot of troubling things going on, isn't there? You have one of the dedicated disciples who's walked with him for all these years, is, is denouncing him, is leaving the room, leaving to go turn him in so that he can be murdered. You have them hearing that, hey, I'm going away, and you can't go where I'm going. This is difficult. And, and, and no wonder he says, do not let your heart be troubled. It's interesting, it's a present imperative. So you could read it like this, stop being troubled in your heart. It's a command he's giving them. It's a strong command. And, and doubtlessly he gives this, you have to understand the scene, doubtlessly he gives this because he sees the trouble they're having. 
There's a lot of questions going through your mind. Where are you going that we can't go? You're, you're leaving? We've left everything for you, Jesus. We left our nets, our jobs, our families. We've left everything for you. Where are you going? See, their hearts are troubled. And certainly they had reason, right? You have Judas and Peter's prediction of denial there in verse 38 in the previous chapter. You have Jesus who has said 11 times to them, at least that we count in the scriptures, that he's going to die at the, and suffer at the hands of godless men who will nail him to a cross, bury him, and he'll rise again. And then you have this departure. This is troubling. And remember, this goes farther than Peter, right? Because Judas has left, and they think, well, maybe this is all about Judas. And Peter kind of shot his mouth off there. Maybe it's about him, but no, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 20, thir, uh, 26, 31, Jesus says, you will all fa- fall away from me. This night, this same discourse where Matthew picks up a little more, this is so wonderful about reading the synoptics of the Gospels. You pick up all these other details of what's happening. And so the same night, same conversation, Jesus says, you're all going to leave me this night, for it is written, I strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall scatter. So this isn't just about Peter and Judas. And so all the disciples are disturbed, because just in a few short hours, they're going to be even more disturbed. Jesus had the answer there for their troubled hearts, though. And he has the answer for our troubled hearts. Is your heart troubled? Mine gets troubled often. I'll just be honest with you. It's hard. There's hard things going on. Right? Sometimes our hearts are troubled. And so he's going to give us the great answer. Notice he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, you can't miss the equality of that statement. You put your faith in God, put your faith in me. This is his answer to the troubled heart. I think it's, it's key here that we don't miss the challenge implied in this call to have faith in Jesus Christ. It was one thing for the disciples to have faith in the God of Moses, and the God of Joseph, and the God of Jacob, and the God of David and Joshua and so forth, the big patriarchs, right? They knew the stories. They knew the Old Testament. They knew Daniel's three friends who stood in a fiery furnace and God delivered them out of that. They knew those stories. That's their great God. He split seas and water came out of rock and he fed the nation with bread. He did all those things. It was easy to put their faith in God. He can't be even seen. In a sense, but he did all that since recording. Now Jesus is saying, You believe me like you believe God. You want to have your heart settled? You believe me. You believe in me like you believe in God. So I think it's another thing here to have faith in Jesus as who's presently standing before them in human flesh. And in soon his flesh is going to be ripped off his body by whips. He is going to be beat to where he's probably unrecognizable. And he's saying, believe in me. It's quite challenging, isn't it? There's mounting circumstances that are coming along. But see, he, he wants their hearts not to be troubled. So the answer is, you've got to believe in me like you believe in God because we share the same essence. And you don't understand that yet, but you will. 
Now here, really, and we look at this as a call to faith, isn't it? And it's a call to faith, believe also in me, in these circumstances, and not just some uttering some saying, right? Say a prayer, walk an aisle, raise a hand, that type of, not all cases, but in some cases, some human act of faith. He's talking about a God-given act of faith. See, faith in Christ is, is turning to him from everything else. Isn't that what salvation is? I'm turning away from everything I've put my hope in. I'm turning away from all of that, and I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm placing all of my eternal hope in him. And by the way, I bring nothing. I come empty-handed. Jesus is going to keep teaching on this until he leaves them. If you look down in chapter 14, verse 13 through 14, he does it in this form. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So whatever you ask, now ask in my name. You've been asking of these things of God. You've been taught to pray. Um, Hallowed be thy name. Father in heaven, right? You've been taught that, but I'm telling you now, ask in my name. I am the one who you're placing your faith in, so I'm asking you now to do that so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask in my name, that's really going to bring glory to the Father because that's his design how you come to me. Do you see that? It's stunning, isn't it? Look at verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Drop over to chapter 16. Same discourse, same upper room. Eleven are still around the table with the Lord Jesus. 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figure languages. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figure languages, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And so now he's changing how you come to God. Before the sacrificial system was all come through the priesthood, come through the sacrifice, come through all those things. For now on, you're going to come to me to get to the Father. I will be your only access. Isn't that beautiful? Is your heart troubled? What have you been doing to try to come to God? See, I think sometimes we find ourselves trying to come to God other than Jesus Christ, even as Christians, when our heart's troubled. So when our hearts are troubled, sometimes we try to fix things, don't we? We're fixers, aren't we? And we don't come to God through Jesus Christ. We don't place our faith in the equality of the Son and say, oh, Jesus, I need your help. Repent of our sins or whatever it is. Instead of just trusting him, we try to take things in our own hands and then our hearts become even more troubled, don't they? Believe in Jesus. What a statement. I just pondered that this week as I was looking at this. I said, Lord, just believe in Jesus. I believe in you, Jesus. What a, what, a, what a simple little phrase, but with what holds such power, doesn't it? I believe in Jesus. I believe he is who he said he is. I believe what he did. I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
can I do that daily? It's not getting saved again. It's where we find less trouble, right? Where we find where our souls, even in troubled times, because we're going to have trials and tribulations, Jesus said, on this earth. But when our faith is in him, when we rest and sink down in him, your trouble will be, will be bearable. You have one you can rely on. Again, think about this. Jesus is just hours away from his arrest, his suffering, his eventually death on the cross. He's imploring his disciples to put unquestionable faith in him. Christ will suffer alone. His disciples will flee. Some will even deny him. But upon his resurrection and the receiving of the Spirit, the disciples will believe and their troubled hearts will find peace that passes all understanding. And they'll become men that are called the foundation of the church, Ephesians uh, 2.20. They'll be foundational teachers of the gospel. And they'll die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because their hearts are not troubled anymore. They're willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus. Second thought today is the work of Christ alone secures the troubled heart. Look at verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, clearly the Father's house is heaven. It's where our Lord resides. The Bible tells us in repeated places that our God is in heaven. That's his Father's house. It's not built with hands of men. And as troubled hearts, the disciples were pondering the coming events, and Jesus takes them, in a sense, to another world. I think that's fascinating. We don't know how this is all going to work out. You're telling us you're leaving us. Judas has already left. We don't know what's going on with him. Peter says he's going to die for you, and you're going to, you say he's going to deny you. And now, now you're taking us to another world. And that's what he's doing on purpose. He does this first by introducing them to the results of the upcoming work of his cross. The result of my cross work is I'm taking you to another world, another place. I think that's stunning. It's his father's house. My cross work is going to take you to my father's house. And there has to be a way to get there. So I have to, now I'm going to challenge you on your thinking on what this text teaches. I have to go prepare a way for you to get there. I don't think this is some kind of heavenly building program as we've often translated it he introduces a place of many rooms I think probably to get our minds around this I think he's talking about a permanent residency rather than this heavenly building program like oh hey another guy got saved hey get another room going (laughs) I don't think that's what's happening here the idea of continuing developing of the next world uh, can be attractive and can really sell and get money put on the plate 
But I think he's talking about something much more bigger than that. The idea is more understood as the Father's house is ready and is waiting for you. And it will only be available to you if I prepare the way so you can come into it. Now read that scripture. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. They're already there. It's an established thought here. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go. Remember he said, I'm going somewhere you can't go. So if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again for you, right? So I've got to go do this. See, most of the time when we study this passage, right, we're, we're just thinking about he's got some building program going up there, right? I, for a long time, I mean, growing, even in my early years of teaching, I said, man, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. Man, what a place he must be building up there. Then you go, well, that's right. God spoke creation into existence. So I don't think we're talking about a heavenly building program here. I think the whole focus is on Jesus, where he's going, that they can't go. They cannot go to the cross. They cannot, they cannot do what Jesus is about to do. He is going to provide a sacrifice that will justify people for eternity. That's the only path. That's the only prepared way into heaven, right? I think that's beautiful. I love the word many here. It's an intriguing word, isn't it? It gives us the understanding that there is room to spare for all that God will open and prepare the path for. If you're worried about that there's not enough room in heaven and you did the measurements and you were studying Jeremiah and you are studying some of those, don't worry. <laughs> he knows all. And Jesus says, all that you give me, I'll lose what? Half of them? None of them. There's plenty for the redeemed, isn't there? Jesus follows this up with a statement. And he says, if it were not so. I think he's just underlining the point. I think Jesus is saying, there is not the slightest doubt. Otherwise, I, Jesus, would have taught you something different. I, I, I love reading the Bible this way. Where he says, if I, um, excuse me, uh, in my father's house are many dwelling places, verse 2, bracket, if it were not so, I would have told you, in bracket, for I go to prepare a place for you. It's just this, boom, emphasis. This is the goal. And I think we should take those words as an emphasis to remind us. This is the word of God. This is Jesus' own word who cannot lie. This is perfect truth. In my father's house, there's plenty of room. There's plenty of room. And I'm the bread of life, and I'm the living water, and I'm the door, and I'm the resurrection of life. And I can and will provide a way. I will prepare a way so you will have everything you need to get there, remain there, and worship forever. I think that's what he's saying. Because on your own, you're not going to get there. You're never going to find the way, and you will not be prepared to worship. Isn't that beautiful? This is, this is hours before they're coming to kill him. They're coming with torches and clubs and, and swords. They're coming to take him like a common thief or a murderer. But he's encouraging his disciples. I'm going to provide a way. 
I think this is absolutely paramount here that this all points to the fact that Jesus is now going to prepare their place, their way to him, their place for all of his true followers. And we should not merely see this place as heaven, but more the idea of how you get to heaven. I think that's what this is about. He's preparing the way. We're going to see that in verse 6, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. See, I think, I think we have to think more positionally here than physically. Now, I totally believe physically. I believe there's a physical heaven. We're going to be in it, and we'll physically be there, and we'll have resurrected bodies, and we'll be recognizable, and we'll see each other, and there'll be wonderful worship and unity all through heaven. I, I believe all that. But I think this is positional here. Remember, Jesus has been teaching throughout this conversation that he's going to go somewhere where they can't go, but they can come later. Verse 36 of chapter 13, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, uh, where I go, you cannot, clearly, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. I mean, that's a beautiful statement. I'm going to plow the ground. I'm going to plow through this so you can come in behind me and go right into the Father's throne room. Isn't that beautiful? 1 Peter 3, 18 says it this way, For Christ also died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. He's plowing the road. Then it says this. Listen to what Peter says. So that he might bring us to God. That's 1 Peter 3, 18. See, he has to prepare the path, the way. That's why he's going to say, I am the way. There's only one way he's preparing that. He's going to plow the road. We're going to come in behind him, and he is our only way to be in the presence of God. And remember, Jesus has said, faith in me will solve your troubled heart. And listen, brothers and sisters, whatever, what you're going through, there is nothing that will settle your heart more than the gospel tonight. That our Lord Jesus, 2,000 years ago, right now, I mean, he's coming up. Tomorrow night will be the night they were in this upper room together. Um, We're we're celebrating and rehearsing this on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday because it, it, it solves our troubles, doesn't it? Not only our trouble, depravity, that that it solves that, but it solves it daily. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves. And to think that our Lord Jesus is saying, I'm going somewhere where you can't go right now because if you try to go on your own, you're going to die eternally so I'm going to go and I'm going to make the way I'm going to plow the ground so you can come behind me and boy does that give us a peace that passes all understanding see that's where that peace comes from and so many people don't have it and and even religious people because they thought well I'm a good guy I didn't do this I'm a good gal I haven't done this I haven't just all this stuff they want to do you're going to die in your sins if you don't come through the way the prepared way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what if, how, how would you understand this as an Old Testament believer, right? Well, look at um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. Remember, he says, believe in God and believe also in me. But look at Hebrews right at the end of that great hall of faith chapter we often refer to it as. How do you get into heaven? How do you find that peace that passes all understanding? Notice, even in the Old Testament, saints, and all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised yet, right? But notice, they're approved through faith. Jesus said, you believed in God, now you believe in me. 
Remember, they were waiting for a coming Messiah, but they had to put their faith in God that God was going to deliver them. Verse 40, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So all are made perfect in Christ. So the Old Testament saints put their faith in God, so they believed in God, so they would believe in Christ. We believe in Christ, which helps us believe in God. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a coming together of the Old Testament and New Testament all centered around the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise God for that, don't we? Old Testament saints, faith was based on the gift of faith of expectation. They were expecting the Father to, to forgive their sins through their sacrifice and their faith in Him. The New Testament saints, faith are, are based in realization. They have a gift of faith now and the, the realization that Jesus died for our sins. But it all culminates in this coming hour, this hour when Jesus would die for us. Regardless of the trouble, heart, that you may have or had even before salvation, it is secured in Christ alone. That's what he's saying to us. Apostles just preach this stuff like crazy. Just one passage I thought of today was 1 Peter chapter 1. Flip over there with me real quick. They, they, they got a hold of this stuff. When the Spirit of God fell on them in their upper room, Man, did they get a hold of this stuff. And it forever changed them. They were never the same. First Peter, this is Peter who would have been here watching all this. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a, what a powerful statement. It's all passive in there. He causes us. There's a gift there to be born again. There's hope in this living uh, Christ who is resurrected from the dead. So it's both his death and his resurrection in that first verse. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Everything else will perish. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It doesn't lessen. And it's reserved in heaven from you. In verse 5, the Bible says God himself is protecting it. And it will be revealed. And so, believe in God, believe also in me. We, we have the way to heaven. I think you let this truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ secure our troubled hearts daily. It is the gospel that brings you out of depression. <laughs> it, it helps you in a struggling marriage. It is the gospel that strengthens you to parent again the next day. It's, it's, the, one, it's the gospel that keeps you in the fight when health issues are, are mounting. It is the gospel that keeps us going, isn't it? Jesus said to Peter, he says, Satan wants to sift you. I don't pretend to know exactly what that meant. I mean, I can do the word and I can parse verbs and I can do all that for you, but... That's a pretty powerful passage. And if he wanted to sift Peter, he doubtlessly would like to sift us. It is the gospel that we cling to that he hates. When temptation of your flesh wars against your soul, it is the gospel 
believing in the son's work that he prepared a path to you to the father that helps you overcome temptation. And all of us suffer from temptation. How many today fell into some kind of temptation? Maybe, maybe just a thought. You were tempted to think something. Maybe you acted on something. I don't know what your temptation was, but it is the gospel that wars, that helps you war against those temptations. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 6 through 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. I love this because that's where he is, right? He plowed the way to take us. That's where he is. With a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And I love that last phrase. Here's what I was after. We shall always be with the Lord. Comfort yourself. And so the Lord is about, in just moments from this time, he's going to prepare the way so we can go to this place where God has created for us. And, he's, and there we're going to be with the Lord, so comfort yourself in that. Comfort yourself in the gospel. Third thought, the all-sufficient work of Christ bringing eternal comfort. Look at 4 through 6. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What an encouraging statement and yet a warning at the same time. And so here in verse 4, Jesus is asserting that the disciples know how to follow him because he has shown them the way through his entire instruction. You're only going to get to heaven through me, but I have to die and I have to be buried and I have to be raised again. He's told them that over and over throughout the scriptures. You do know the way. You can't go die and get yourself in. Only I can do that. So you can't go that way. But after I do that, you'll follow me right into heaven. So he says, you do know. Because I've been here with you. I've walked and talked with you. I've been the word who dwelt among you. And you beheld my glory as, one, as the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. You know who I am. I and the Father are one. I do the work of the Father. If you've seen me, just in a few verses, you've seen the Father. You know the way. I am that way. Verse 5, you can see the perplexity that Thomas has probably on his face. Remember, there's not a residing spirit of God on them yet. When the spirit of God falls upon them, can you imagine the aha moments that took place, right? Oh, that's what he was talking about. I mean, over and over and over. You see it in the scriptures because you can just, you can refer back to uh, Peter and John and James so often because a lot of what they're teaching are things Jesus taught them. Thomas is clearly perplexed here, right? In verse 5, we don't know where you're going. And, and notice he wants the position to be clarified. And I think that's good. And he's not going to let Jesus' words just stand alone. I think, he's, I think this is the movement of the Spirit in him 
though it's not residing permanently until he comes and breathes upon them and they receive the Spirit of God after the resurrection, there's a desire. He, 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 I need some clarification. We don't understand. And I think Thomas' honesty shines through his words here. There's a true desire to follow Jesus. But his, his failure to hear, and you think of what got in the way. Well, during all this discourse, they're going to leave here, and they're going to go down through the Kindred Valley, and then up the hill to the Mount of Olives, and on the way, they're going to be fighting and arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Well, no wonder their hearts are troubled. They can't hear any of this stuff. But, but I like the honesty of it. Jesus told them, I'm going where you cannot go. I have a way, but I've got to do it first. I think to Thomas and probably these other disciples, it might have sounded impossible in some sort. I'm going to the Father, and they're going. <laughs> How are we going to get there? How are we going to do that? They knew their Bibles. No man has seen God and lived. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to them. And then Jesus says, let me give you the answer. Verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about leaving. And it's this is clearly what's on Thomas's concerns here, but Jesus has been talking about going to the Father. Back chapter 13, verse 3, if you just look back, he says, Jesus saying, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was about to go back to God. So Jesus knew he came from God. He's about ready to go back to God, and he's speaking about how that's going to happen and the path he's going to prepare for his followers to come along with him. And now he says to his disciples and to us, I am the way. You can come after me. And I don't think Jesus is just speaking about the way. He's speaking about the truth of the way. It's connected to the truth. This is the true way, right? I am the way and the truth. It it will not only point people to Jesus in utter despondency because you think about this, There's so many religious people in the world down through the ages who want to get to God, but they try to come some other way. They don't know the truth of how to come to God through Jesus Christ alone. And so there's this connection between the way and the truth. Those are inseparable thoughts there, right? Inseparable truths. There's a way and there's a truth, and you can't separate them. And people have been trying to do it forever, right? They still do it today. Well, I believe in Jesus and this. And if I'm baptized in this particular church, I'm saved. Or if I, if I prove my salvation by these works and, and, and therefore justify my salvation along with Jesus' justification, then I'm... See, see, they've missed the truth, and so they never get the way. You miss the truth, you don't get the way. They come together, don't they? And what about the life? Well, life will take place when you come the way through truth. That's all, that's all the result of coming to God through his way, through the truth. You, you have life. And Jesus is both the life and the source of life of all believers. So all of this follows this amazing statement that no one can come to the Father 
except through me. I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life. All three of these have significant, a, a kind of a triple expression of Christ's finished work and his emphasis on his multifaceted way that he saves people. I'm going to be the way. There'll be no other truth besides me. And if you come that way, you'll have life. And you'll have it abundantly. So I think the way speaks of the connection of two persons. I am the link between you and God. Sinners will never get to the Father if they don't come through me. Because I am the way. That's the truth of the matter. And if you come through me, you will have life. I think the way reminds us of that. First, Paul said it this way, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men. There's my point. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. See, he's the way, right? That, that, that's, that trickled down into all of their teaching, right? That's the gospel. And the truth, again, reminds us that it's complete trustworthy. Well, it's a, he's completely trustworthy. You can put your absolute faith in him. This is the only way to the Father. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be what? Period. I mean, wow, is that beautiful. See, that's the truth. See, and they knew it. John later writes, and the word became flesh. And we're quoted this and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, the shared glory. This can't be anything other than God. Because only God could save us. John chapter 6, remember, he's done this teaching on that. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you can't be a part of me. Of course, so many religions have just blown that completely out of its context. Jesus says, when all the rest of them left, says, are you guys going to leave me as well? And Peter, speaking for the group, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? See, I love this phrase. I think every one of us Christians should say that when we hear some kind of false doctrine, some kind of works, maybe that even rises up within us <laughs> in some way. Every one of us should say, Lord, where would I go? You have the what? The words of life. Remember he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's such a good reminder, Lord. Lord, anytime I try to present myself to you outside of what you have done, it's just dead. It doesn't go anywhere. I, 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 I suffer greatly, and I'm troubled. But when I come to you through your works and you're the one mediator between me and the Father and you bring me into his presence because you ransomed me, that's the truth that is trustworthy that I can stand on because those are the words of life. He said in John eight thirty two, the truth will make you free. Some people get a sentence, a life sentence, don't they? See, we're set out of prison. We have now eternal life. The bars are open. The gates are free. God has done that. And so we're not just talking about just a, a mere uh, physical existence and everything's going to be great. We're going to have ponies and, and rolling hills and all the things that you want. <laughs> You're going to have life eternally with the Son and with the Father. 
And it's beyond our imagination in so much ways. I mean, mean, we try to study heaven, try to get our mind around that. Dwight's been teaching a series to the seniors on storing up treasures in heaven. And and he's told me a little bit about that and the beauty of that. And that's such a great reminder to think, yes, this life is worthy for living with the Lord Jesus. But when all that's said, I mean, how is that going to take place? How, How do we still in this... Uh, unredeemed humanness of us get our minds around life and eternity. And you know what I love? Because you don't. You got faith. You believe God's word despite not fully getting our mind around that aspect of it. But here's what we do know. Jesus died for my sins. And the Father raised him to prove they were forgiven. And I believe that. He is the way. There is no other way to the Father. He's, we stand on the truth of that, and I have life because of that. All hours before his death. Just hours. The group's assembling. Disciples are complaining. Well, verse 6 is just beautiful language. It's strong language. It's uniqueness. It's sufficiency, right? Everything in it. Sufficiency of his work. Don't, don't miss that. That's, that's where we place our faith, way, truth, life. See, that's the role of faith. That's how we're accepted into the kingdom of God. That's how we come into his presence. That's how the disciples came, and that's how all believers do that. So let us not forget that all of this lies within the shadow of the cross, and, and how our Lord could do that. I, I mean, you just know he's God. Because if, you're, if you know what's, and he knows, he knows what's coming his way. And yet, in that loving demonstration, just hours before his arrest, mocking, sufferings, all of that, and his eventual crucifixion, here he is telling his disciples, this is the only way to me. Don't come any other way. Come through the truth. I'll give you life. And then go tell the rest of the world this. That's the Great Commission. Believe in God. Believe also in me. As you read this week, and you go through the week of this, what we call Passion Week, just keep in mind the circumstances. This dozen hours after this, maybe a little more, he'll be dragging his cross through the streets. Father, we just are stunned when we drop into a scene like this. These are precious truths. We all love it. We've rehearsed these truths. We love that there's this, at least in our minds at times, there's some kind of heavenly building program going on. Because we don't understand the context of the moment, we don't see really what that way is, what that preparation is. The Lord had to go to the cross. He had to plow the way to the Father. No one else could do it. Not one person will ever stand in heaven and say, I'm here because I made my way to you, Father. It will be only those who come through Jesus Christ alone. So tonight, Lord, as we Think about 2,000 years ago. Just a few hours from now, you're going to tell your disciples to go find that room that was prepared. 
All these events are going to happen. All this instruction. The Judases are going to leave you and betray you. The Peters are going to deny you. But you are undeterred from God's plan for you. So you can provide and prepare a way for us. And I know I can say for so many in this room, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that. We ask, Lord, that you would consume us, capture us with this thought. That morning, night, and noon, we would think of the gospel. Lord, it will help us in our temptations. It will help us deal with sin quickly. It will help us repent faster. It will help us not fall into sin and live godly lives that are pleasing to you, Lord. Because it won't be based on our works. It will be based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. We're but dust. We're very weak, Lord. But your spirit strengthens us, and we're more than conquerors in you. And so, Lord, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. And Lord, I just, I know I'm praying for so many in this room right now. We just want to thank you for this week. We, We think about this week every week, but it's, it is very pleasurable and very stimulating, Lord, for us to slow down this week and think about your cross work. So we ask, Lord, that this week would be life-changing for many of us. That we would be a little more like your son when this week comes to conclusion. We'd be changed. We'd be growing in his image. Because we're reminded of the way through the truth and the life that was received. Praise you for these things, Lord. Thank you for each and every one that's here, Lord. I pray you would strengthen them. If their hearts are troubled, Lord, turn them to the gospel. Give them sweet rest tonight. May we again pick up our Bibles in the morning and remind ourselves of these events. In Jesus' name, amen.